so with all of that, let's get to our sermon this morning, uh, which is called Casting the Net uh, One More Time. And the Gospel of Luke, we've been in now for quite some time, uh, since last year even, it records the life and ministry of Jesus, and thus far we looked at the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus, a brief account of an event from the boyhood of Jesus where he went to the temple, and, and uh, we learned about the ministry of John the Baptist, the preparation that Jesus went through for ministry, including his temptation and his beginning to teach in synagogues. Along with this, we have seen in the last uh, couple weeks the accounts of some healing stories, the miracles and casting out of demons that Jesus did in the very beginning of his ministry. And so today, as we launch into chapter 5, this morning we're going to hopefully be encouraged by the events surrounding the calling of the first disciples. So we're going to be in chapter 5 of Luke and verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to see what we can get from this. I think the Lord's got some great encouragements to us uh, and some lessons for us to take with us and process. Starting in verse 1, Luke writes, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, followed him. It's quite an amazing story. And there's many lessons and many encouragements in it. So let's look closely to see what we can find. We'll go back for a moment to verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So we've already seen Jesus has drawn much interest in himself through his teaching and through his healings. His reputation is growing, and many people are coming out to see him. In this case, he's standing out by the lake of Gennesaret, also known to us in other scriptures, as the Sea of Galilee. The crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. This shows us that people were not just following him because he told stories well, or because he was entertaining them. They were coming to hear the word of God. In verse two then it says, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now fishermen in that day, before there were nylon or polyester ropes, um, they need to be extra careful to both wash and dry their nets after every use. Otherwise, the ropes would rot or get mildew and mold in them. 
and moldy ropes would not keep their strength, and so it was important to wash and dry the nets. And so we know then, before Simon even says so in verse 5, that these men have already been out in the water, and we're going to learn in a bit that these two boats were working together. In verse 3 then, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So outdoor preaching can be hard enough, with the voice of the speaker competing with the birds and the breezes, and even more so if this crowd were on the same level as Jesus, it would be difficult for anyone not close to him to see him, so he gets on the boat. He asks Simon to put a little bit out from the land, and then he proceeds to sit down in the boat. And rabbis would sit when they taught. Their students would normally take a position on the ground while the teacher sat a little elevated, although sometimes they may sit in a smaller group just on the same level, which presents much less difficulty if there's less students. And you will find phrases both in the Bible and in ancient literature uh, something to the effect it'll say someone was sitting at the feet of their teacher or their rabbi. Now, since Jesus is up on the boat now and elevated above his listeners, they can both see him and hear him more clearly. Now, I'm not criticizing anyone, but I've known pastors that feel it's better to speak from the floor at the same level uh, as their congregation is sitting. And they this way they feel they're being humble, perhaps, uh, or that being up higher somehow may make them less approachable. But the, the reason that most churches have a platform for the pulpit is not to make the pastor seem higher than anyone or more esteemed in the faith or anything like that. It's simply a way to ensure that people have a better opportunity to see. And my youngest daughter could tell you this earlier this week. She had trouble seeing at a performance and this was because the performers were at the same level as the audience. And even though we were only three or four rows back, the people in front of us blocked part of our view. Now, in some churches, such as the famous Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, the Church of Dr. Kennedy, uh, the pulpit is really high up. And if you were to visit St. Andrew's Church, which was Dr. Spruill's church in Sanford, North Orlando, you'll get you'll find the pulpit so high they actually have stairs going up to it. And in that great American novel, Moby Dick, there's a long scene recorded of a great sermon given by a pastor in a church in a fishing town that likewise he had to get way up into the pulpit to preach and climb a ladder to get there. Now, in those churches that have the pulpit very high, of course, a practical reason is, is part of the reasoning and that's what I mentioned. It makes the preacher easier to see. Uh, and in the days before sound systems, especially, it would help their voice to carry over the people in the front so that those in the back could hear better. But perhaps even more important, the reason the pulpit is so high in many of the Reformed churches is that it is to remind the people that they are hearing the word of God as it's being preached. And this honor is not to the preacher that it's so high. The message he preaches is the very word of God. And so while it may be nice for pastors to want to be down with the people, it seems to me that the pulpit should have a central place and an elevated place in our worship, not only elevated physically, but elevated spiritually, whereby we are reminded that the word of God and not just a man's own words are what we're dealing with. 
my preaching professor felt strongly about this as well. He, he liked a solid wooden pulpit. Uh, and in the chapel of the Bible college I attended, they had a sort of acrylic a pulpit that was open, kind of like this. <laughs> and he called it the charismatic pulpit, he said, because you could see right through it. <laughs> but what more important position for the presenting of the word could there be when the word is being preached by Jesus himself? So humbly Jesus was, but yet high was his message. This message, the word of God, was too important to not make every accommodation that could practically be made to help the most people hear the message. And it seems like Jesus was, in this case, as practical as a farmer. I knew a guy once that was from South Africa, and he told me there was a phrase there translated meaning something like, the farmer makes a way. And it was their way of saying that necessity is the mother of invention, right? Farmers have to be very inventive. And I would venture to guess that on almost every farm on the planet, you will find some tool that the farmer himself or herself invented or modified in some way. And while in today's world where we can order parts and tools and have them in a day or two, the farmer of old was out there far from the city and the planting needed to be done and the tool was broken or somehow inadequate for the present job. So the farmer had to make a way. Many farmers are woodworkers and metalsmiths. They have to learn to be a jack of many trades. And here we may say that Jesus serves as an inspiration to those who must make things work with whatever is available. He needs a quick solution to his problem of the crowds pressing in and he wanting to have the most people possible able to hear his teaching. So he sees these boats and decides that the pulpit is there and already it's prepared to be used. Now Jesus is done with his lesson. And he's a request that is also a sort of test. In verse 4, it says, He's finished speaking, and he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So let's consider for a moment some of the objections Simon might have had, in addition to the mild one he actually gives. One is that Simon is a fisherman. He knows where the fish are normally to be found. I can tell you I've not done a huge amount of fishing, but when I've gone with an expert, I've done far better than I would have done on my own. Simon, as well as the other fishermen with him, knows that the best fishing is at night or very early morning, and that's exactly what they have been doing all night. But if you were trying to, going to try your luck during the day, at least in this region that we're talking about in Scripture, as far as I could determine in my study, you would not get anything from the deep parts during the day. What other objections might Simon have had? Well, we know that when Jesus started speaking, the men were washing their nets. By the time Jesus had finished speaking, we could reasonably say they probably finished this task and probably they kept working and listening to Jesus at the same time as they were getting their nets uh, put away. But now they have not only worked all night, they've done the work of preparing the nets for the next uh, trip out and they probably spared the net, had spread out the nets to dry uh, after washing them which is what they did and this was not hard for us to understand this frustration we might have after a long day or night of work and having done the final cleanup and someone arrives and says take everything out again and do some more work and many of you have been in some sort of situation like this 
All the work is done. You put everything away. You're about to head home for rest and relaxation. And the boss comes and says, I have another project for you. If that's never happened to you, may I encourage you to join the Marine Corps and you'll certainly learn about this sort of thing. Simon also could have object objected to Jesus. Hey, you're, I like you, Jesus. You're a rabbi, you're a teacher. I'm the fisherman. I'm the expert. But Simon's only objection, at least this objection that he stated, is overruled by his desire to obey. But that objection... I think it's just a, an objection of plain old weariness. We toiled all night and took nothing. Weariness. Perhaps frustration, too, that the hard work had no results to show for it. If we do a day's worth of hard work, we hope to have something to show for it at the end. It also may indicate that Simon thinks this is just not a good day for being out in the water again. And he probably would just rather go take a siesta and come again to try in the nighttime. But over and above any objections, the one he spoke out loud and the ones that he probably kept to himself as well, because I'm sure there was more than one objection in his mind. Over and above all of that was that Simon had seen something special about Jesus. He had certainly met him before. Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. Jesus had made an impression on Simon. He had heard some of the teachings of Jesus by this point. And what comes from hearing? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Who better to hear the word of Christ from than Christ himself? And so Simon believed, I think, in at least some way. I don't know that we could say he believed exactly what was going to happen with Jesus and the salvation that he would offer and all that. But he at least believed on some level something good about Jesus. He may not have had the clarity he would have later, but something in him had been stirred. And this is explained by a scripture that tells us that faith is a gift of God, not works. Whatever faith that Simon had to obey Jesus in this moment was most certainly a gift from God. It couldn't be any other way. Faith comes to a person through hearing the word of Christ. This faith, the Holy Spirit, quickens within the person. Perfect faith? No. It was with a little caveat, perhaps a little grumbling. It is obedience, but not without drawing attention to the cost of the request. We toiled all night and took nothing. We're tired, we're hungry, we're worn out from a long night and morning of work. We've been out in the boat, we've thrown out the nets again and again, nothing to show. Now we've washed our nets and put them out to dry in hopes of recovering tomorrow what we did not get today. We have no fish to sell, no income today goes to our families. It has been a complete bust. And now you say for us to go into the deep water where no one catches anything this time of day, but I will do it. I will do it because it is your word. And in verse six, we see what happens. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. It's an immediate miracle. These nets are huge, by the way. Perhaps 100 feet circles, some scholars were saying. And they have so many fish now that the nets are beginning to break. They need help. Verse 7 says they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So many fish that both of the boats began to sink. 
One scholar said these boats were probably about seven feet wide and maybe 27 to 30 feet long. These aren't little tiny boats. There are so many fish that they start to sink. And remember, the net only went out from one boat and the catch was big enough to sink two boats. This is a big catch. At first, Simon was busy on the job. The excitement of the moment, though, catches him. And he's, for a moment, just focused on the work. But then he remembers Jesus. He realizes something incredible is happening. And all at once, he senses the power of Jesus in a new way. He had seen Jesus heal. But here was Jesus, Lord of creation, who commands the sea to give up its fish. Or perhaps he commanded the fish themselves to swim into the net. Whatever's happening here, it reveals that Jesus has authority over nature. And at the same time, it reveals the holiness of Jesus. Holiness means separateness. Jesus is so set apart from them. And holiness also means perfection. Like, and Peter is like Isaiah and like many who encountered God before him. He's frightened at the holiness of Jesus. And anyone who has spent any time at all reading or listening to the late Dr. R.C. Sproul will not be surprised that in his commentary on Luke, his entire focus as he writes about Luke's narrative is the holiness of God. It is one of the top five books I recommend to people, Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. But even in his commentary on Luke, he can't avoid the topic which consumed his whole life and ministry that he wanted people to understand that God is holy. Simon realizes he's profane and God is holy. Jesus is holy. And that is something we all need to understand. This is the best explanation of Simon's reaction. It is interesting that suddenly after calling him Simon throughout this narrative, suddenly Luke adds the name Jesus would later give him. I can't help thinking that Luke did this to mark a significant moment and how important it was in the faith story of Simon called Peter. Because now all of a sudden he's been calling him Simon through the whole passage. And all of a sudden in verse 8, he says, when Simon Peter heard it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Isaiah was in the presence of God, he had a similar response. Isaiah 6, 5, he said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You cannot encounter the holiness of God without realizing your own sinfulness. Every person recorded in scripture who was given any kind of a glimpse of the holiness of God had the same reaction. I'm a dead man. The feeling of being in the presence of a holy God, the sudden and much more clear understanding than one ever had before of their own wretchedness. It's indeed a frightening thing. He begs Jesus to go away. Showing that he's really not in his right mind since they're out at sea. This is not a command, by the way, in the sense that he's speaking and giving orders to Jesus. You need to understand that. Rather, it's something like begging him to get away. After Jesus healed the two men with demons and they went into the pigs, the people begged him to leave. Because people who encounter the holy are scared for their lives. In Matthew 8, 32 to 34, where we see that account of the demons being cast out he said to them go so they came out and went into the pigs and behold the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters 
The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. It was the fish that brought attention to the creator Jesus, who commands and is sovereign Lord over all that Simon's reacting to. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Here's the famous phrase. This may seem like a bit of a nuance, but our English may not help us fully appreciate what's being said here. This is a metaphor, of course. Like Simon, James, and John had once caught fish, now they would catch men. However, fish are caught to be killed and eaten. When Jesus said, you will be catching men, which means men and women, or simply humans, it, it wasn't that they would be caught just to be sold or eating, eaten. It was a catching that brought life, that spared people from death. The word Jesus used means something like catching men alive or to take, or to save alive, to take captive, or to spare the life of. So on the same beach, sometimes you have both fishermen and lifeguards. Jesus is telling these men that their occupation will not be to catch fish anymore, but to save people. And just as in many encounters with the holy recorded throughout scripture, Jesus responds to the fear that Simon Peter has, and he says, do not be afraid. They are in the presence of the holy, yet not for their destruction, but for their salvation. And not only for their salvation personally, but so that they will be put to good use for their Lord and his kingdom. And verse 11 says, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. We do not need to conclude that they left all the fish to rot and the boats to float away at the next tide. Zebedee, father of James and John, and other men who may have been relatives or hired men, most certainly would take care of the boats and the nets and the fish. This massive haul of fish, by the way, would most certainly provide well for quite some time for the families of Simon Peter and James and John, so that their absence from the fishing business would not mean that they had left their families without means. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus graciously provided not only the evidence of his mastery over nature and his holiness and the metaphor of fishing for men, he provides as well for their families so that these men can focus entirely on serving Jesus and leaving their families to be taken care of. Just as someone with means may sponsor someone to go and do ministry work, Jesus himself in this case provides. Now, I mentioned a bit ago that Sproul focuses on the holiness of God as he writes on this passage, and I think that is a very important element for us to consider, the holiness of God. And additionally, I believe there's some powerful encouragement here for each of us. Whether we serve God in some sort of occupational ministry or, or you're serving in some other way, it tells us something of evangelism as well. And the perseverance we need to keep on in obedience to Christ, doing the work to grow his kingdom. 
we would all do well to pay attention to the lesson found in Simon's obedience. Even if it was somewhat reluctant, and even if he may have whined a little bit, there is a huge and important lesson for anyone who's trying to do the Lord's work here. Sometimes the work does not seem to present results. Sometimes we will feel like Simon. Lord, we've done all this work. We've nothing to show for it. Many people in ministry have felt this way. When the Christian Missionary Alliance first went to Syria over 100 years ago, they sent a missionary there and for entire generations of gospel work there, it seemed there were no results. But after about three generations of consistent gospel witness, something happened. Today, there's a strong church in Syria. And several years ago, when the war was happening and Syrian refugees to Europe and other places, you know what happened? There were CMA, see Christian Missionary Alliance, when I say CMA, just so you know, that means Christian Missionary Alliance, or I might say just Alliance. It's all interchangeable. <laughs> when all of those refugees went to Syria and they went to countries like Germany, for example, there were Christian and Missionary Alliance missionaries there in those countries already. And some of them had been seeing very little fruit at the time among the people they were there to reach. And suddenly missionaries in Germany who were there to bring the gospel to the German people but had had little result now had thousands of refugees who in the displacement and all the trouble they were facing, they were receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so some of those workers who thought their harvest of soul would be among the people of Europe suddenly had a harvest of soul of displaced Syrians. And you must understand that God works in very mysterious ways. Who can understand him? The same could be said. I, I was in the North Central District before I came here, the Alliance, which is the, a big area of that is Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. And you wouldn't believe all the immigrant populations. There's entire CMA churches serving different immigrant populations there. So just as the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance had a vision to bring the gospel to peoples from all over the world, God himself has brought peoples from all over the world to where the gospel is as well. And we have also sent. It goes both ways. It's amazing. So these stories, they're going to be told through all eternity of people who did the Lord's work and it seemed that they didn't see any results. Then suddenly the Lord does something with the work. If this comes when a humble and obedient servant of God says to him, Master, we have toiled all this time and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets one more time. We always need to do it one more time. Jesus commanded Simon to try one more time. Simon responds, they've tried all night, but because Jesus is the one commanding, they will try one more time. This leads to the great metaphor of the evangelist that you will be fishers of men. Sometimes there is no catch, though. Yet at his word, we cast the net again. What we, we will catch at the next casting of the net, only God knows. Yet cast, we must. And sometimes evangelism and kingdom work is much harder than simply fishing without a catch. Sometimes going without a catch is easier than 
dealing with sea monsters, sometimes not only is there no catch, the boat's overturned. Sometimes storms come that discourage us and make us wish we were occupied in something, anything other than the Lord's work. Simon Peter's catch of fish was nothing compared to the souls caught in the net of his preaching. Peter himself, who once struggled to bring in this catch of fish, later would be pulling men from the waters of baptism. I wonder if when he pulled people up in baptism, if he was brought back to this moment of time when Jesus himself orchestrated the sea and the fish to come into the nets. Today, we know that Jesus will save all who are his. Yet we do not know who they are. Only he does. He knows when and where the fish are that will come into the nets of our gospel message. He knows we don't. But we keep on casting the net. Jesus may indeed surprise us at times with a huge catch. Other times we may feel we are laboring in vain. Yet we must cast that net one more time. Jeremiah the prophet is sometimes called the weeping prophet. Here's a guy who preached 40 years with no converts. No one listened to him. He kept telling him exactly what God told him, him to say. We're going to get exiled. You're going to get exiled. You need to turn away from the sinful ways and you, or you're going to get exiled. Nobody ever listened. They got exiled. 40 years. Yet he was faithful. He kept preaching the message that God had given him. Moses at times. He wanted to be done with leading these stiff-necked people. Right? Ministering to others can be frustrating and wearisome. But we must keep casting the net. And as with any metaphor, this can be taken too far. Many in the ministry see it as a virtue, so to speak, to burn themselves out for Jesus. Many feel they should put up with abuse from people who have claimed to be believers but are constantly on the attack. We must be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. It may not be wise to do ministry at 2 a.m. as the drunks are coming out of the bar. Some people have done it, and I'm not going to judge, but it may not be wise to hand money to the person on the corner without verifying whether the money is being used for real needs. Sometimes people have a sort of martyr complex where they ignore the needs of their own family to take care of others. But our families are our first responsibility. So it may not be that we keep casting our nets at stubborn fish who refuse to be caught, in fact, doing so may keep us from moving to fish that God has prepared for us to catch. Now, we have seen Jesus as teacher, as healer, and as commander of nature so far in our study of Luke. And we see an example in Peter who, even though he was weary, because he saw that Jesus was the real deal, he obeyed him and cast the nets one more time. And we saw Peter's response to the miracle of the fish. He suddenly understood the horror that sinful people feel when faced with the holiness of God. And may we, like him, live in reverence and service along with obedience to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord. I thank you for your powerful word. I thank you for this great story, Lord. It encouraged me. I pray, Lord, it will encourage all of us. That even when we've labored and we don't feel like we're seeing results, that we would be so 
desiring to obey you, that we would say, Lord, on your word, I'll cast that net one more time. May we be willing servants, and may we do it with joy, Lord, with the expectation knowing that you as coming king have already determined which fish are going to come into our nets. And may we live with that kind of confidence as we go into your kingdom work in Jesus' name. Amen.